Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello. I think we're going to have some fun with this one. We are chatting with Casey Holly, and she has got some great uh, tips and tricks when it comes to engaging in some of those delicate conversations or political kinds of things that show up at the office. And she is fun to listen to because she's from Georgia. And it's always just a good sound. So you're going to learn one, how to deal with your dragons at the office. Two, keywords and phrases for dealing with a bad boss. And three, how to enroll others in mentoring you as well as championing your ideas. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to stuff, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F40. And if you just want those takeaways faster, then sign up for the Gold Nugget email list, which provides an email that you can read those key takeaways in under two minutes. And that's also right up there at awesomeatyourjob.com. So here's a bit about Casey. Casey Hawley teaches at Georgia State University and has consulted clients such as the NFL. That's the National Football League, not the National Forensics League, if there's any speech dorks in the house. The Department of the Interior and over a dozen Fortune 500 corporations on communication. She conducts workshops on writing and speaking for professionals. Here's Holly. Casey, thank you so much for being on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm so pleased that you called. Oh, yes, yes. Well, no, I'm tickled. I think you've got a lot of fun for us. But tell us, you know, when you're not, you know, coaching and teaching and writing, what do you do for fun in Georgia? What do we do for fun? Well, the Chattahoochee River is within walking distance of my house. And there are all kinds of walking trails all up and down the Chattahoochee. You can be right in the heart of the city and feel like you're in, you know, a deep forest. And my favorite place to go, there's a coffee shop that is right on the river. You can actually put your feet in the river while you sip your coffee. Oh, that's delightful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good setup. It's good on a hot day like this. Yeah. So is it iced coffee or is it hot coffee? Well, I do the hot coffee, but most of the people I go with do the iced coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The debate rages on. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So you've written the book, 100 Plus Tactics for Office Politics. And when I kind of perused that, I thought, wow, that's a lot of tactics. So I'd love to maybe start off by hearing your thoughts on what do you think are are some of the absolute kind of most powerful that when you share them with folks, they say, yes, that is so right. How come I haven't already been doing that? Well, one of the ones that comes back to me over and over again, where people say this really helped me out and I've never really thought of it that way is I talk about your dragons in the workplace. And the old school approach was you go into the workplace and you're going to face people and problems, and those are your dragons, and you got to slay your dragons. you got to be ferocious. And that's very, very, very much the old business school model. And then we got a little bit more enlightened, and the model was, to teach your dragons to dance. In other words, you manipulate people oh. and in order to make them do what you want them to do. But today's model, and the mo- because people are really looking for authenticity today, and so what you really need to do is to learn to dance with your dragon. You know, your dragon has traits and characteristics that may look hostile to you, but they may not be. It may just be They're very, very different. It could be they're protecting their territory because they're fearful just like you're fearful. So you kind of 
learn a little bit about your dragon. You tr- come to understand what he's afraid of, what his goals are, what he's trying to do, and his dance, his pattern, what he's trying to do every day when he comes into the workplace or she comes into the workplace. And then you look at what you're trying to do and your own little dance, and you learn to dance together. And it's very much like learning to dance, where sometimes both people want to lead. So that is one thing that people come back to me over and over again when they encounter people that they find challenging, and at one time they would have been threatened with them, and they go more into an observation mode and a learning, kind of a learning stance instead of a defensive stance, and it can be transformational. That that pause is very significant when you don't react, but you intentionally go into a learning stance and say, I want to learn about this person. I want to know why that person reacted to me this way. Okay. Now, could you maybe share with us a, a story maybe from a client or, or someone you, you've shared this advice with and, and how that comes to life? Well, I can actually share a story that happened with me. And uh, when I was younger, I worked for a large consulting firm and I was very, very low in the hierarchy in the company. But this was when bias towards females was much stronger than it is now. And I was at a very big dinner, very we were preparing for a meeting with a client the next day. Everyone was a little bit nervous. We might lose the client. So there was a lot of pressure in the room, but there were all these people at this dinner table. A lot of partners from our firm were there. It was amazing. I even got to attend, but because I had written some of the reports, I held a lot of information. So I got to attend the meeting. And in the middle of it, one of the partners starts making fun of me and he tells the whole table. He said, I have to tell you something so funny. Casey wants to be an analyst. And at that time, that company had never had a female analyst. They were very much, yeah, they they very much believed that, you know, men were more analytical and they had never had a female analyst. So instead of, and he, and he was very taunting, very much so. And so I said to him, I, instead of reacting, I just asked him some questions. I said, so what makes you think that I should not be an analyst? And, you know, he said some very sexist things, (laughs) including the fact that I was blonde. That was one of the things Hmm. on his list. So as he went through this list of all these reasons, I just decided I was going to outperform everybody on my team and I was going to prove him wrong. And I didn't lose my temper. It was very difficult not to lose my temper and tell him what I really thought, but I didn't. And a year later, when I became the company's first female analyst, he was the partner who put my name forward to be an analyst. Oh, that's good. And I can talk about the dragon metaphor. I could see how you'd really want to slay him in that moment. <laughs> I did. I really wanted to slay him. Oh, oh yeah. And it's a good thing there wasn't a lance anywhere near. <laughs> I probably would have. Oh, well, well, that, well, well kudos for that self-control. And, and, and that's kind of eye-opening. I think that's enough to make some people just uh, fly off the handle or just say, forget this guy, forget this job, forget this company. I'm out of here. Yes. Exactly. And sometimes that's the right decision. But for me at that time, that was the best role for me. I knew I could do that job. And I thought I'm not going to let one person stand in my way of that. Okay. And so now in your book, you, you also list a 25 critical moves every professional must make. And I'd like to know, you know, within those 25, what are some of the, the top one, two, three, like moves that every professional must, must make? Well, I think you should 
always, always be ready to go. I mean, and when I say go, I mean be ready for a merger, be ready for a promotion, be ready to be fired, be ready for downsizing, be ready for anything. And that means that you have your resume ready at all times and you constantly update it. You keep a file at all times. I call mine the Valentine file. Whenever anything good happens in my career, if someone compliments me, if, if my boss commends me, if a client says something or says you got the top evaluations from all of our workshops this year, you know, anything, I document that and I keep a file of those because what happens is when you do need them and you never know when you're going to need them, a lot of us forget things. We, we let those little things, we think we're not going to forget them, but we do. Mm-hmm. And so you have all that documented when you get ready to interview, when you get ready to try to land a new client, you have all that documentation you can just pull from it. The other thing I highly recommend is you should routinely go on informational interviews. You may not be in the job market. That's okay. You may plan to stay with your company for the next 20 years, but you can go on informational interviews with people in your industry. You know, if your company runs the mail room one way or the print shop one way, go and see how someone else does it. And sometimes you can learn different twists on what you're already doing from someone else who has a similar situation. And when you go on an informational interview, when you call someone up and ask if you can come and just have about 20 or 30 minutes of their time, you are ethically bound to only ask them for information. You, are, you cannot at that point ask for a job, I believe. Hmm. You just call them up and you say, I'm looking to make a change in my career at some point this year, and I want to know a little bit about what your company does. I'm not looking for a job currently, but I would like to know a little bit about your role and, and what you do as uh, the CFO there, as, as an analyst there, or whatever that person's position is. I'm just, I'm just in the information-seeking mode, and it's very non-threatening. A lot of people will grant those interviews, but they will not grant a job interview. So it's a wonderful way to get people slowly to become your advocate. They will see jobs that are open before they ever get posted. Many of the good right. ones never get posted. So that would be one thing. And, and so can you also share with us a bit about, you mentioned some some pro tips for dealing with uh, difficult boss situations. What are some of those? One of the things is to just accept the fact that statistically more people think they have a bad boss than think they have a good boss. Mm. And When I first began to write about office politics, the first thing you do is you study your competition. So when I went into the bookstores and I did searches online, 80% of the books about office politics are about I hate my boss. So the first thing that you have to realize is that you probably, for most bosses, will need to learn to accommodate and bite your tongue for a while. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of the process. And then, you know, as you begin to assess objectively, you know, what the real issues are, and it really depends on what the problem with the boss is. Some bosses are just very erratic, or they forget that you did the work, or it was your idea, and all of a sudden they're coming up with these ideas, and they're telling everybody that they're... So, in a very cordial, pleasant way, communicating, documenting, a really good idea. And uh, you can give your boss credit for things and say... For instance, you can say, if you're in a meeting, 
uh, as I was putting together this information, I found thus and so, and I want to thank my boss because he did Chapter 3, right? He did the section, and you give your boss credit for what he or she did, but you also give yourself credit. And you don't do that in, a, you don't do that in any way that you're contradicting the boss, but you get your information out there. Now, sometimes you just have someone who is very negative and very hostile who doesn't see your accomplishments. In that case, you need to turn the tables on them. You need to put the responsibility on your boss to concretely define what it is that he or she wants and for you to be that ideal employee or if you've gotten a bad performance review, for you to get a good performance review the next quarter, what precisely would you need to be doing differently? What would that look like? What kind of numbers are you not meeting now that the boss would like for you? You know, is it that you want higher customer satisfaction ratings? Does the boss want you to process more invoices? Get the boss to really define that and the two of you document that together and do that again. You go into this learning mode, this learning stance, and you say to the boss, I understand you are not happy with my customer satisfaction ratings. I understand you are not satisfied with the quality of my reports, and I really want to improve in this area. You know, you are an expert in this area, so would you work with me to define and teach me what that was? I don't know anyone else who would be better than you would be to teach me exactly how to do this. But then once your boss commits and defines what he or she wants, and you revisit that three months later, then you can measurably show that you're doing what the boss wants. Because sometimes they're valid things that you need to improve on, but sometimes the boss just has this general complaint against you. This helps you defend yourself in a way that's very positive and only shows that you want to meet the boss's criteria. Oh, very good. Thank you. And, and could you also tell us a little bit about how you go about, you know, gaining the, the buy-in ownership support of other folks to champion you, your ideas, your, your projects and proposals? Well, part of that is just to include them as much as they're comfortable with from the very beginning. And so when you have a project and let's say you are you're in sales, but it is going to involve the operations people and it's going to involve the HR people. I would go to them, first of all, one-on-one, -on -one, and I would say, I understand that when we undertake, we'll call it the Nike project, when we undertake the Nike project, this is going to cause extra work for you and you're going to have to do this hiring and you're going to have to do this distribution or whatever they're doing. And I just want your ideas going in about how I can make that process better for you. And if you have any suggestions for us, because you've worked on large projects like this before, what are the mistakes that have made, been made in the past? Because I don't want to make those mistakes. So if you do those one-on-one -on -one meetings first, and sometimes people like to get everybody in the room also after that and, and have a group meeting, then if something does go wrong, you have people who tend to want to support you a little bit more. They know that on the front end you made an effort. And what you've also done is you have started to get to know these people a little bit better. And, uh, you know, people move uh, in between departments in a company and divisions in a company all the time. I've seen a lot of people go from 
say, the operations side to the marketing side and back and forth. And sometimes people see the kind of uh, performer you are, and they want to hire you over to their areas. That's one thing I would do. And I would also be very, not aggressive, but you have to be intentional to get mentors. Now, quite often, if you ask someone to be your mentor, they'll say no, because Mm -hmm. it sounds like a huge time commitment. So I probably would not use that word. I would go to people who are higher up than I am in the company, and I would say, I would like to be able to come and spend about 20 minutes with you three times this year or once a quarter, something that sounds like a, a very little, uh, that would have very little impact on their time. Or I would like to have a phone coaching system, a phone coaching appointment with you once a quarter. And I would just like to bounce ideas off you because I, I like the way you handled your career and you can make any comparisons between yourself and that person and say, because you've, you've walked in this path that I'm on right now, I would just like to get a few ideas. Would that be all right if I called you? And most people will say yes, that if you start off with the word mentor, mm-hmm. people feel like it's going to be a huge responsibility and they back away. Certainly, yes. And it also just seems a little bit like, oh, where did I hear this? Like, will you be my mentor? It's almost like, you know, yeah. are you my mommy? And it's a little... Just, it doesn't, it just doesn't yeah. feel so good to be on the receiving end, whereas people do appreciate being valued for their, their wisdom and expertise, mm-hmm. but that yeah. ownership uh, sounds daunting. So, so very good. And it, it does. I mean, yeah, it does. And also, you have to be as concrete as possible when you're doing that. And, and that's in everything. That's probably my number one pet peeve in the way people don't communicate with each other is they're not concrete enough. So, when you tell them, here's what I admire about you, and you mention a specific project that they did, and if you can put any numbers to it, you know, the yield or the dollar amount or whatever they accomplish, and say, that's the type of thing that I want to understand more about how a project like that starts and what happens and how it becomes successful. That's the type of thing they think, oh, I could, I could explain that. That's very specific. And it makes it, you have to make the job of mentors, people who possibly could give you a job, people you're going to be interviewing with. If you really adopt the psychology, I want to make their job as easy as I possibly can. You get a lot more people saying yes to you. Okay, very good. You mentioned your book, Means of Correcting Other Folks' Mistakes or Bringing Up Delicate Matters. What's the best way to do that well? Well, sometimes they just have outdated information. And so you sift through it all you find the one thing that you can possibly agree on. And you you look at all the erroneous information and you say, well, that was true up until this year, or that was true until we shifted to this software. Or at one time, I would have agreed with you because at one time, we would have done it exactly that way. But here's what's happened. And you, you present it like a change it's not a direct contradiction. It's more of a fluid, like, and now here's what we're doing. And so you get the differences in there without ever telling them that they're wrong. Oh, lovely. Thank you. So it's not so much you're wrong. It's like, oh, the landscape has shifted and, and here we are now. Right. And that's what it is. A lot of times they're operating off old assumptions that they're not as updated on the project as you are. And so that's one of the ways that, that you could say. And 
Or you can, if it's a different type of thing, you, you can back up and say, I agree that we need to do something different in this situation. You know, if somebody has come up with a solution that you think is just crazy, <laughs> but you, the thing that you might agree with the person is, is that a change does need to be made or the satis- customer satisfaction is not what you would like it to be either or something that you both agree on. And then you go into, but here, and then say, but here's how I think we could change that in a much shorter time frame. Not that my way is better, but here's how we could do it more effectively or faster or something. After studying this, this is what I've come to believe. And almost like it's, it's been a gradual dawning for you too. It's not, you know, sometimes people, when they want to correct people, they're so fast to say, it's almost like the child in the front of the room with a hand up saying, oh, ooh, I'm wrong. Right. You know, I'm right. You're wrong. If you can let that go and just make it seem like a, a very slow evolution or it's dawned on me also that maybe there's a different way to do this, it doesn't make the other person feel as much like the wrong person. Oh, very good. Thank you. And and so, well, this is a, a nice little potpourri of, of tactics that I could absolutely see being applicable. And I really like the notion of any, if someone has a terrible idea, you can always agree with them that you absolutely something needs to be done. And, and kudos to you for really taking some initiative to, <laughs> to figure out a, yeah. a new means. And, and, and so building off of that idea, here's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, 180 of that idea. <laughs> what was it? Uh, I think it was the movie Bridesmaids. Should I say? And, and building off of that idea, also maybe yes. a Fight Club. <laughs> yes, that's a great example. Oh, that's fun. Well, so you tell yeah. me: is there anything else you want to make sure that you get to convey here before we shift gears into the the fast fave segment? I mean, you, you've brought some cool experiences working with NFL players who are transitioning into mm-hmm. kind of more mainstream uh, professional roles. So I don't know if there's any uh, wisdom coming from that or other experiences you think professionals need to hear from you. I think the main thing is the nonverbal part of how you come across to people. You know, 80 to 93% of what people are going to carry away from a conversation with you is nonverbal cues. And we spend so much time worrying about what we're going to say And that's just such a small part of the chemistry between that other person and you. And it's it's interesting you brought up the NFL football players because most people I coach, I have to coach them to have more energy and to lean in a little bit more (laughs) and to be assertive. And with most of the NFL football players, I have to get them to dial it back a little bit, I you see. know. And so it's it's just it depends on the person. So the best thing to do if you are going if you want someone to assess your style, go to several friends and ask them to have maybe a business conversation, a mock interview with you, something like that, and then get them to assess your nonverbals the whole time. You should have your phone there and video your face the entire time. Oh, that's and, good. and as you as you video yourself, you'll see little things that you may not realize that you've done that could make people put them off. Like I know someone who narrows his eyes a lot, mm. and he does that because he's concentrating, which is very not. But it doesn't look that way. It looks a little menacing. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's perfect. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, well, so now I'd love to shift gears a bit, and could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote? One of my favorite quotes is, well, it, it's an old one, but I think it's the truest thing that you never have a second chance to make a first impression. And that really applies to when you make a sales presentation, the first words you say and the last words you say are the most important, but by far the most important are the first words you say. So you have to come out of the shoot, not with something predictable, but with something very positive and something that is memorable, something that they'll remember. Same thing in a job interview, same thing in the first time that you meet a new staff, let's say you have a new job and you're meeting people, the first things you say to people are scrutinized more than anything you will ever say to them the rest of the time you work with them. So you have to be really sure whatever you say sounds very supportive of the other person. Understood. And how about a favorite study or piece of research that you look at often? (laughs) Well, honestly, I love to do original research. I did a great deal of research for one of my books about managing the older employee. And it was for um, millennials who are managing now baby boomers. And the interesting part of that research is that there is a bias among millennials in their hiring. When they become managers now, they do have a bias, but their bias is towards hiring a boomer. If they have a chance to hire a baby boomer or another millennial, it's very close. It's it's almost negligible, but they have a slight bias towards hiring the older worker. And I found mm. that fascinating. I think it's greatly to the credit of the young person because it shows they're very open-minded and they don't have prejudices. And in the study, it said, it, it talked about everything they liked about hiring older workers and also about younger workers. And they said, yes, the, the number one problem they had with with the older workers is they take slightly more time to learn new technology. Mm. But again, they said that's negligible, and and in a matter of it's a matter of days difference. And then they are wonderful employees, and so they were willing to sort of get past that in order to have some of the other qualities that the boomers have, like loyalty and uh, following instructions very explicitly, and things like that. So I I found that interesting. Oh, yes. And how about a favorite book? My favorite book, this is is really hard. My favorite book really is not a business book. It's uh, my favorite book is Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. But I guess my favorite business book is Greatest Management Principle in the World by Michael LaBeouf. And, uh, you know, it's an older book, but I go back to it year after year after year. It's excellent. Uh Uh-huh. Gotcha. And how about a, a favorite tool, whether it's a piece of hardware, software, or gadget, for example, Instapaper or Evernote, something that you find really handy for producing good work? I've become much more dependent on my phone. I use my phone for everything. I, if I get ideas for books, for lectures, I'm always in the process of preparing presentations for different groups. And so I just keep the notes for each one of those on my phone, and I go back to it as the ideas come to me, and you never know when the ideas will come sitting in the dental office or whatever. That's the main thing that I'm using now. And I'm trying to find more and more ways to use it and never have to take my laptop anywhere. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that, that helps you be more effective? Well, my people make fun of me. I'm very scheduled. Mm. And if I don't 
I find it, and I'm perfectly fine with departing from my schedule. But I want to start with a schedule, and I want to have kind of a view of what I'm going to accomplish each morning, each, each afternoon, and all that. And then within that framework, I'm perfectly okay with moving things around. But if I don't have that before the week starts, if I don't have a structure for my week, I don't get nearly as much done. And so, for instance, my schedule, I thought my schedule was going to be one thing for today. And there have been two or three opportunities or emergencies, and it's totally changed. But, but I was able to change those things around, and, and that's okay. But I never find myself just with a lot of lost time. And I feel like many people just lose time every day because they don't have a focal point for what they were going to do. And I at least have the focal point. You know, I write a lot of books. I write, I speak a lot of places. I've done, people ask me a lot about how I get so much done. And it's just that I have my weeks very scheduled, but I'm also extremely flexible about shifting things around. All right. Thank you. And what's the best way to get in touch with you if folks want to learn more or check out your stuff? The best way to get in touch with me is at chawley at gsu.edu, C-H-A-W-L-E-Y at gsu.edu. Okay. And do you have a a final parting challenge or or call to action for those seeking to become more awesome at their jobs? Hang out with the best people. Oh, absolutely. When you go into your workplace, don't hang out with the people who are critical and negative. Find the people who look like they're on their way. Make those your friends. Find out the people at the level above you. We've already talked a lot about that. Try to meet people in other departments and uh, go to all the social functions. Go to training and conferences. If you're bosses, we want to send you to this training on let's you know some new software they're doing you think you know i'm not i don't really use that software that much i don't want to go go anyway it's the best networking in the world going to training going to conferences and meet all the people that you possibly can and look for people who are interested who are positive who are productive who are on their way and that's the company you want to be in so that would be the main thing i would say Oh, good deal. Thank you. Well, Casey, this has been so much fun. Thank you. And and I wish you all the very best. Thank you, Pete. Okay. Well, I hope you're ready to put some of those pieces into effect, knowing that you're always ready to go and and have those flexible options available to you and are plotting strategically and and speaking uh, well and and cleverly in those situations. So once again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned and links, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep40. And I hope you stay tuned for the next episode where we've got Dr. Nick Morgan and he's when you're going to want to prioritize. He's kind of reshaped the whole way I think about speaking and doing presentations and he was someone I dreamed of getting on the show right up there with David Allen on episode 15. So definitely you don't want to miss Dr. Nick Morgan episode 41. Until then, have a good one. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.